politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman to the one and only CR podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house here at Blaze Media to guide you through the tumult, the tyranny, and the totalitarianism of our time. It doesn't have to be this way, but by golly, it will continue to be this way if we do not change course and act. And as independent conservatives, patriots, or just anyone who is just not part of the system resolves to do better. We cannot repeat the failures of the past. You know, today is Tuesday, November 9th. It actually is the anniversary of Kristallnacht, uh, where the Germans went and sent their jackbooted thugs around to attack all these Jewish homes and businesses and beat people. That didn't happen overnight in a vacuum. It was building for five years or so. Um, And remember, back then, they didn't have social media to really uh, inculcate people with dehumanization of others so quickly. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is they think history, history definitely repeats itself, and you have to learn it. But they think it could only repeat itself in the exact same manner. So people don't see a particular race, religion, group of people being attacked. But it's the same concept. It's just, it's not a matter of you being a certain group. It's a matter of, are you with the system or not? If you don't do what the system tells you, you are dehumanized. It doesn't matter how unscientific it is. It doesn't matter how immoral it is. It doesn't matter how illegal it is. You don't get the shots. You, your your business could be vandalized. That is, that's not even a jump. That could happen right now. So what we're going to be busy with in the coming days and weeks is all the ways we could use the power we do have in the states and localities to interpose, to push back. What sort of agenda could we push to finally get primary candidates to separate out from the typical Republicans so that we win these races next year, not just on the backs of phony Republicans that are part of the problem and in on it, but true patriots. These are all things I'm working on now. Now, our our first sponsor today, I'd really excited to announce our partnership with Convention of the States. Um, One of the reasons why I support COS, first of all, they have the greatest grassroots in in each state. If you want to meet the best, smartest people in your given area, this is really where you need to sign up. Um, Conventionofstates.com slash Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z, that's my name. And sign their petition today to support COS. And to me, the biggest thing is not even so much, okay, one day we'll get 33 states and 38 states. It's more the immediate effect of recognizing that Washington is the problem. The solution is not going to flow from there. And if you can't take back your local government in a 70-30 Trump state, then it certainly is not going to happen in Washington. And to me, this is the best way to focus on localism, self-government, and making state legislatures great again and making red states red again. It's kind of like, you know, going to the moon and NASA. They didn't really do much with it. It didn't really, I mean, what do they gain from it? But some of the technology that they invented is the process. And to me, that's the thing. Even if we, we don't get 38 states for a number of years and we'll be dead by then, That's, to me, more down the road. The immediate thing about COS is their ability to actually do something right now to get conservatives together. This could tie into primaries. 
Mark Levin, Steve Dace, Governor DeSantis have all been on board with COS. Again, go to conventionofstates.com slash Horowitz today to sign the petition to, to demand your state legislators to vote yes on convention of the states. Um, and, and, and speaking of that, by the way, we, we have already in Tennessee, we're on day 11, I think, although it, it, it doesn't include weekends, so I think he has till Thursday, Governor Bill Lee to sign their bill, the only state that pushed back against the feds and the mandate and doctor freedom to prescribe, right? The governor won't sign it. He opposes it. How does he get reelected? He's up for renomination next year. We need a primary challenger. So we need to start going through all these governorships. Almost all of them do not deserve re-election. That is the key. That is the key. Every state legislator and governor that you have, unless they have affirmatively stood up against COVID fascism, they do not deserve re-election. It is that simple. Now, you have to understand what is going on in the country now is a religion. It's not science. You're not going to win an intellectual debate because they've already lost it 100 times over. For example, there's a study out just this this week on school closures caused more harm than benefit. Well, we knew that after a few days into this, and yet it went on for a year and a half. And not only do they not get held accountable, but these same people are now believed to say we need to do the next irreparable harm of injecting our children. It's a religion, which is my point that you're not going to convince the Democrats aren't, aren't going to be there. You're never going to have an Elijah on Mount Carmel moment where they'll be like, man, wow, you're right. The shots are killing everyone and have no benefit. Like we talked about yesterday, all pain, no gain. Literally, at this juncture, there is no benefit and only risk, both on the side effect and on the COVID side, from the shots. So whatever minor benefit there was to a small select amount of people for a few months in the spring and maybe early summer in some places, that's gone. So it's not even a net risk. It's an absolute risk. But it won't matter. For example, a lot of people are talking about... um, the California governor. And I've been watching this for a few days and I don't want to comment publicly because you never know. But I think it, you know, without them coming with a counter narrative, it's very hard to imagine any other explanation how Gavin Newsom has been missing for 11 days other than he was injured by the booster because that was the last time he was seen in public. Now, I don't wish death or injury upon anyone and I certainly wish healing upon everyone. And I hope it's not bad, but let's just indulge a hypothetical that he, let's say it's true that he got Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is terrible, paralysis, you know, neurological problems. Um, let's say that's the case. Now, you would think in a sane world where the very governor who mandated a dangerous injection unprecedentedly for the first time in American history on children just to go to school, and then he himself gets a debilitating injury or whatever, assuming, again, we're just speaking hypothetically at this point, you would think this would blow it wide open. This is a biblical story. But the media is not even reporting it. That's how much power they have. But let's say it did come out. It won't change. You know, they'd be like, what are the chances that the governor of the largest state 
happen to be that one in a million. If it, you know, their 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 side would say it's like one in a million. Well, what really? What chances are there that the governor of the largest state happened to be one of those? No, as we well know, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people injured for life. And then really we wonder if everyone who got it is injured in terms of their you know, immune system compromise and, 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 and risk to cancer, and that's yet to be seen. But those people don't have a voice. So they're just a statistic. This is the governor. But if you think that's going to change the left, they'll double down. It's like crying out to bail. You look at all these places, we, like we talked about yesterday, Singapore, Central Europe, these countries with nearly every adult vaccinated, and it's worse than it's ever been, and they're blaming the unvaccinated when there literally are no unvaccinated adults in some of these areas. It, it won't matter. It's a blood libel. It's about power. You're not going to convince them. They know. They already know. Which is why the only way to fight power is with power. Yes, to bulk them up and bolster their arguments, you need to continue making intellectual arguments and talking about the data and science, and we're going to be doing that every day. But you got to have a strategic power play. Let me give you another, another, another example. CNBC announced yesterday that the Biden White House tells businesses to proceed with vaccine mandate despite court-ordered pause. The Fifth Circuit ordered a stay on it. Doesn't matter. All these years, remember I told you, the courts have no power. The executive has the power. So when you had courts stepping out of their lane and mandating that the White House affirmatively, DHS affirmatively approve visas for Somalis, everyone was like, Daniel, the court said, what are you going to do? Like, the Democrats, here you have them granting negative, right? Just, just saying, look, look, these people have a right to live. Americans and foundational rights and Biden's like, hold my beer. Screw you. We're not listening to the courts. And again, this should be a role model for what red states need to do with the federal courts when they legitimately violate the Constitution. Here, the court was right, obviously. But the point is, Democrats have one rule. We win, you lose. It's not, they're not convinced. They don't believe in the science. They know exactly what we know, and that's exactly why they're doing it. They know the vaccine doesn't work, and they know it causes so much injury, and that's exactly why they're pushing it, I hate to tell you. So you need a plan for states to nullify this, to fight the judicial supremacism, because it's not going to be there for us anyway, and even if it is, they'll force it on us anyway. It's a religion. You're not going to convince them. You know, my my niece is in pre-med, and she's studying immunology in college. And the professor doesn't know what to do because, you know, he's never had such a brilliant student. And the guy literally gets up there and is like, oh, I'll tell you why women are. I think because I think she brought it up, my niece, uh, that men are more vulnerable than women for COVID. Oh, it's because women wear masks better. And the guy will just spew something insane that it's like there's no evidence of that. And it's the opposite is true. It hasn't worked anywhere. And, And she's like she raises her hand and says, isn't it because of the hyperandrogen and men have more ACE2 receptors? Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> like, she totally nailed him um, on, on that issue. But, like, this guy is teaching immun- immunology and just says retarded things. But that's how they are. You're not going to change them. So if the Gavin Newsom story is true, 
It's not the Democrats that are going to change. The question is, are the Republicans going to change? Are the Republicans going to continue saying this is the safest and most effective way of dealing with the with, with, with the um, vaccine, the virus, as really every governor except for DeSantis is, is now saying, even the ones that are claiming to fight it. Now, folks, part of why we are where we are, really the predominant reason, is because big tech censors all the information flow. How does big tech have that power? Guess what? It's the fault of a lot of us that we continue to allow Gmail and Yahoo, which are really spy mail, they're not free. You think they're free. They're not. To sell your data and spy on you, watch your political strategic planning, your business plans, your medical records, it is not free. And I think you should all know that at this point. That's why I trust Startmail. I like Startmail for a number of reasons. Number one, they give you an unlimited number of aliases. I've actually been using them a lot to span these vaccine clinics. It's been a lot of fun. Um, registering my daughter, Jillian Bray, Bell Palsy, Myocarditis. But anyway, um, when with Startmail, deleted means deleted. It's gone forever. Um, they can't spy on you. It's fully private. And and look, I hate to say it, and I would have been taking pride in American companies before, but they're they're overseas. And actually, that's a good thing. They're governed by the strictest privacy laws and you know, they're not taken over by the cabal here. So, you know, you don't have this problem that Parler had with Amazon servers. They have their own. And it was just really simple. Um, it's very cheap for a family plan. Um, and you get you get more bandwidth, more um, uh, data than you'd get with some of the other services that are also good. But that's why I like Starmail. Don't trust big tech. I don't. Neither should you. Secure your email privacy with Startmail. Sign up today. You'll get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash conservative. That's S-T-A-R-T mail.com slash conservative for 50% off your first year. So, you know, folks, part of what is going on is red states and Republicans are a reflection of the conservative movement. And as you well know, they're frauds. Dan Bongino was the only big national talk show host to stand up to Cumulus. None of them even reached out to him. And by the way, I really appreciate Dan had me on his show yesterday. Um, just, just an FYI, a lot of you are like, oh, why don't you have Dan Bongino on? Just know I contacted him right away. I don't know if it's a contract or some sort of thing he has. What he'll do is he won't come on. He'll invite you. It happened to Steve too, I think. So um, I did invite him, and he's certainly always welcome, but I think he'd rather have a guest rather than going on someone else's show. So he was gracious enough to have me on his show yesterday, and you could hear that on um, if you rewind uh, Monday's episode of Dan's show. I know we have got a lot of Dan fans in this audience, but we don't, we don't have this anywhere. And that's the problem. You know this as well as I do. If every other talk show host would be like that, we would have a different country, at least in the red states. But we don't. You know, someone, one of you guys sent me, and this looks authentic, a letterhead from Cumulus, a letter that recently came out where they talked about creating bigger bonuses for recruiting potential employees. They literally say they're going to give you a greater bonus if you, if you, um, recruit someone who is, quote, a person of color. I, again, I thought we were done with the colored people thing in the 60s, this this 
segregation business of designating people of color, but somehow that term has taken off. But you now have Cumulus, which houses the lion's share of conservative talk, literally indulging the same language policies that are evil as the left. And by the way, one of the things that I have planned, I was speaking with Chip Rory about this today, you know, we need a new contract with America for people to run on um, state local candidates and Congress as well. And one of the pledges has to be to eradicate the mention of race from every single policy, every single legal thing, every single curriculum, every single all affirmative action, all recognition of a human being as distinct based on race. Unless maybe you want to promote vitamin D and just let people know if they're darker skin, they're more vulnerable and they should take these supplements. And that's unfortunately the only thing that they won't, you know, <coughs> promote. Um, but <coughs> no, I'm serious. Like that's literally the only thing in life that it matters. That if you're dark skin below, uh, above the 35th parallel, you're more at risk, um, you know, for low vitamin D. That's literally the only thing I can think of that should ever matter. That was Martin Luther King's dream, and yet Republicans will go along with it. Unbelievable. That's what cumulus is. This is what we have. But folks, we have a lot of very dangerous news, and I want to get to our guest just how dangerous this shot is, how the guardrails have been ripped off Pfizer could do whatever they want um, in terms of the drug development, in terms of the development of what's going on. I want to read to you one important story from Alex Berenson, if you haven't seen it. Last week, JAMA published a, a peer-reviewed paper comparing natural plus vaccine COVID immunity versus vaccine only. Okay, they didn't have people with only natural immunity. It was vax without prior infection, vax with prior infection. And one of the points they say is that vaccinated individuals with prior infection six months or more before dose one has statistically significantly lower risk for breakthrough infection than those vaccinated less than six months ago. I want you to think about that. Let me explain that in plain English. Typically, what we've seen with the shots is that they work for a few months and then wear off. So the longer it is since you got the shot, the less effective it is. But that's with people without natural immunity. Here, among people with natural immunity, okay, they were better off the later they had the dose. Okay. Um, in other words, in other words, what this means is now, obviously, again, the vaccine wears off, but here you have natural immunity. So there is no wearing off because natural immunity doesn't wear off. So it's the opposite. In other words, let's say you had prior infection six, eight months ago versus having prior infection just a month ago before you got the shot. You are worse off if you recently had the infection. Well, wait a minute. I mean, the other side says that it wanes. So everyone would agree if you had prior infection more recently, you'd be better off. Now, they didn't test people with only prior infection, which you would see 
barely have any breakthroughs. But you have more breakthroughs with people with the shots and prior infection, and then certainly, obviously, a lot more with the shots and then without prior infection. But what they found was that you are more susceptible to breakthrough if you only recently had the virus. The only logical explanation for that is that the shots slide back your natural immunity. And what that would suggest is that if you have immunity that has been built up for months in your body, it's a lot harder for the shot to slide it back compared to someone who just got the virus and maybe it didn't fully percolate. I mean, I don't understand the mechanics of that, but that's the only way to make sense of it. And then, you know, kind of like what we saw from the Public Health England uh, study, which seemed to indicate that those that have N antibodies and then they get the S antibodies from the shots, it depletes their N antibodies. And possibly what this Cutter study published in JAMA would show is that it's more likely to do that if you had prior infection only recently. How could none of this have been studied? So that's what we want to talk about with our next guest. Um, This next segment is sponsored by Patriot Academy. Folks, we had a blast out in Front Sight, Nevada, constitutioncoach.com. We had constitution training at night, the best two- and four-day handgun defense training classes during the day. We all had a lot of fun together. You know you want to come. Um, There still is room uh, for the class at the end of November and early December. There's two, two of them. Uh, if you sign up at constitutioncoach.com, you could get 90% off. So it's literally $100 for the two-day course, $150 for the four-day course. That four-day course at FrontSight, if you go through the the um, gun training facility itself without Patriot Academy, that's $2,000. Um, now, yes, I mean, everything costs a ton, cars and hotels and whatever, but I would say, look, make it a nice vacation. The weather is gorgeous this time of year in in uh, the desert. Otherwise, it's too hot. It's very hard to sit there on the line training from 9 to 5, 8 to 5 some days, you know, with with the summer heat. So this is the time to do it. Um, this is the last time of the year. Now, we don't have a date set, but if, the, if there are those of you who can't make it, Sometime in February and March, we will have another round, and I'll probably be out there then. So, again, go to constitutioncoach.com, the best constitution and handgun training in America. Now, folks, until now, I've mainly had medical doctors on to discuss all of the various aspects of the pandemic and early treatment. Today, we're actually going to have a PhD scientist, but in many respects, his resume speaks to this issue this issue of the safety signals, of the vaccine being ignored, all of the parameters that we typically use to develop drugs, therapeutics, vaccines, just those guardrails being ripped off their hinges. Today's guest is in many ways even more um, more well-placed to discuss this. Dr. David Weissman is a PhD research bioscientist. He's originally from England with a background in pharmacy, pharmacology, and experimental pathology. Um, he was one of the developers for Johnson & Johnson when he headed up a research program overseeing different preclinical and clinical trials. So very much an understanding of what typically used to go on uh, it, through a process like this that we're seeing with FDA approvals. Also, he, he does run a company 
where he develops medical devices for surgical applications and therapeutics in the areas of pain. So very much understands the way the body works and the concern about some of these safety signals we're seeing. Um, he's also incidentally been involved in the fight for early treatment with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Um, that will probably have to get to another day. But Dr. Weissman, we have so much on the agenda today. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, th- thanks, thanks a lot, Daniel. Uh, yeah, just fire away because I don't know where, where we're going to begin, but I'll let you take it away. <laughs> yes, there there is so much. And I, I really want to take it kind of the here and now, where we are right now. Um, you know, I was typically someone in the past that was concerned that organizations like the FDA were too strict, that we prevented too much uh, life-saving medication, even just for the right to try. And yet here we are going from one end to the other end where it's all good, mix and match, whatever it is, whatever safety signals, whatever efficacy, it doesn't matter. Just do it and not just make it available, but even before the mandates, a degree of of marketing and championing of it that we've never seen before. Um, the British, British Medical Journal, there is an article out from a whistleblower alleging that there was an unblinding and corruption of the data. Could you start there and discuss what are some of the concerns? Because we're seeing terrible safety signals, but all the trials showed this, this vaccine was amazing. Wow. Well, thanks for the introduction. And, and by the way, I think you just said that all you don't need me. I can just hang up right now because you, you've just nailed it uh, perfectly. Um, I, I, think, I, I think you've captured really the essence of this, that, that all the rules, I think you used the word guardrails or something, uh, have been just completely ripped off their foundations. And, and, and I think that's a very, very accurate um, observation that you've made and the one that your listeners really need to hear. And, and hear it from not only me, um, you know, I have some experience, but there was an article uh, published in the American Thinker several days ago by an ex-FDA um, senior uh, official who was an advisor on drug safety to the FDA commissioner, Dr. David Gortler. Um, and and he, his title of his article was something like, I can't remember the exact words, um, you know, the FDA has failed in their um, duty to ensure the safety of the vaccinations for children. Uh, you can look up the exact wording, um, but he basically says what you what you, what you've just said. Uh, you mentioned the BMJ article, uh, which was. Uh, we, we, I mean, this is the British Medical Journal. We're talking about this is not. You know, this is this is the British Medical Journal that that are printing this article that contains allegations from a whistleblower relating to um, um, scientific misconduct, allegations of scientific misconduct, including falsification of data and unblinding at one of the study centers that was used by um, Pfizer. I don't think it was part of Pfizer, but it was a, probably a contract a facility, it sounds like, um, commonly used, um, and where this person noted these various violations. They tried to notify various people, either they were fired or some consequence happened to them, uh, and it included unblinding. Um, so if that is, um, and that was around about a year ago, and if that is a pattern across other study centers, then that's very, very concerning. But I, I, I think I think we need to say that that it could it might be an isolated incident. We have no idea. But it does speak to the the overall uh, sort of lack of uh, you know uh, assurance that we have on the quality of these studies. But let's talk about the unblinding for a moment, really, really quickly, and and, and focus on that. Uh, most people will think that these studies 
are what are called double blind, randomized double blind studies. And, and everyone has been indoctrinated, you know, in the days of the hydroxychloroquine, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, story a year and a half ago. Oh, yes, we can't do this because we have no randomized double blind clinical study because this is the gold standard of everything. Unless we have such a study, then then we know then we don't even need to talk about it. That was your recollection, correct? Exactly. That, okay. that was the whole thing. No matter how many ivermectin studies, it's got to be large, randomized, double-blinded. Right. Nothing, okay. No other evidence matters. Okay, so so let me ask you this, Daniel. The studies that you've seen, the, 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 the two uh, Pfizer studies, the 001 study, they, can, they have all these serial numbers, so I will call the, the adult pivotal study ends in 001, so we're going to call that the 001 study, and, and the children's study ends in 007, so we're going to call that the 007 study. Okay, so 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 is your impression that the 001 study and 007 studies are randomized double blind studies? Is that news that goes out everywhere? Is that your understanding? What's your is understanding? that they are yes, they are randomized and they are large and no 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 they no, no. Did... they're randomized double blind. Just answer me yes or no. You're on you're on the you're on, yes. you're on the stand here, Daniel. I'm putting on you on the jury stand. You're my you're, understanding you're... is yes. Okay, wrong, wrong. They are not randomized double-blind studies. You can look this up. You can look at the protocol. You can look at the description. They are randomized observer-blinded studies. They are not randomized double-blinded studies. Okay? Why does that make a difference? Okay? It makes a difference because we like to do double-blind. Double-blind means that the patient doesn't know what they've got, and the person or persons that are involved in either administering the, 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 the drug or involved in the analysis of the drug or involving the... Um, the uh, evaluation of the person measuring, you know, blood pressure, whatever it is, that all those people need to be blinded because biases could could creep in to the studies. Even unintentional biases could creep into the study. And that's why we don't want anyone to know what happened until the very last moment that the data gets analyzed at the end of the, at the end of the statistics. OK, these are observer blinded studies, which means that the, in theory, the patient could know, although they said they took steps otherwise they could know what they received and even if even if they didn't know what they received the person giving them the dose or the persons preparing the dose uh, were not blinded okay and so even unintentional bias could have happened in 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 this whole story so they are not double blinded studies so that's the first huge myth that you need to get rid of okay Wow. In the, in, 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 yes, wow, exactly. And you can read it. Can I mean, read- that, that's a big deal because this show, we've been so into the early treatments and the war on early treatments, and that is their big obsession. It's got to be double-blinded. Well, you, please look it up. Please check it out. Don't take my word for it. And, 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 uh, and, and, you, and you can check that out. And, the, and you can see all the, the, the things they say about the, how they try to stop people from you know, knowing it was what they received, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now, in this particular allegations that you mentioned in the BMJ, um, this person alle- alleges that, 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 that not only was there a theoretical risk based on the fact that this is a, an, an observer-blinded, not a double-blinded study, but they, they said that even despite the, the so-called precautions that were sort of built into the protocol, okay, that that person alleged that, 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 that you know, that the people, there was a real much more uh, higher danger of the person uh, the patient knowing what they what they receive, whether they receive the vaccine or the placebo. Now, why is that really important? Because in the in the data itself, and this is really important for for your you know your uh, audience to know about. In the data itself, you have to know that there that the that, that there were approximately um, 
2,000 patients in the efficacy study. There was, I think, 1,300 and something patients in the vaccine group and about 663, I think, in the, in the, um, in the, uh, in, in the placebo group. And, and in the placebo group, 16 patients um, received, uh, 16 patients developed COVID, not serious. None of this is serious COVID. So that's a whole other story we need to talk yeah. about. But, but 16 patients received uh, the, 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 the placebo in, in the, and out of 660-something. And three out of, um, sorry, 16 patients got COVID who received the placebo. And three out of 1,300 and something uh, got COVID in the, in the vaccine group, Okay. Now, 16 and 3 is a very small number, okay? You don't have to make very much of a mistake, even an innocent mistake, right, for, for those 16 and 3 to become, uh, and remember, there's a 2 to 1 imbalance. So it's really like 3 and 32. Let's, let's sort of use, yep. use that approximate number just, just so it's easy for people to understand. So 3 and 32 is still a very, very small number of people in the end. So even if the 3 goes up to 10 or 20, and the 32 comes down a little bit to 25. Okay, you can you or or 16 and 16. You can easily see that very very quickly the estimate of 91% efficacy could very quickly dwindle down to a number very close to zero. Okay, <laughs> that's that's huge to understand because the entire risk benefit analysis, even if we agree with all of FDA's numbers, even if we agree with every single number about their how many myocarditis cases, how many uh, you know, MISC cases there are, et cetera, et cetera. Even if we agree with all of those numbers, okay, it makes no difference whatsoever unless the vaccine is effective, yeah. okay? And, 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 and so all this nonsense argument, all this snow that's being thrown at everyone with multiple um, epidemiological, you know, very vague um, studies, oh, how bad things can get with children if they get COVID, even if we agree with everything, it makes no difference whatsoever if the fundamental efficacy data is complete rubbish. And at the bottom of the slide, if you recall, on the FDA's um, uh, presentation of the Pfizer data from Dr. Ball, look at the October the 26th meeting, go to the FDA website, download the slides yourself. You will see at the bottom of that slide, it says analysis not verified by the FDA or words very similar to that. Analysis not verified by FDA. Okay, they are asking. It's as if it's as if it's as if you went to a car seat manufacturer, you bought a car seat for your child, and it said um, the, uh, the National Transport Association, whoever it is that certifies, you know, the safety of car seats, says this is this is a safe seat, except we haven't checked whether the manufacturer has done accurate t- safety testing or, or testing to, to determine whether this car seat actually, you know, uh, prevents injuries from tri- from children in car accidents. Not only that, the car seat that we're selling you is not even the same car seat that we did tests on. Would you, would you put your child in, in such a car seat? Okay, If you wouldn't put your child in that car seat, why would you give them a vaccine that the FDA hasn't verified the efficacy data? This is absolutely, absolutely beyond nonsense. Okay, Absolutely beyond nonsense. So let's get back to those 3 and 32 numbers. Okay. So if there was unblinding that could have occurred either because of serious scientific misconduct, as was alleged in this uh, BMJ paper about the 001 study, we don't know if it applies to the 007 study. That's the first thing. And, and if, even, even if there was no scientific misconduct, but this was an observer-blinded study, not a, not a double-blinded study, 
those numbers could still be subject to bias. That's the second point. The third point is that if you look at the number of excluded patients, there was something like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like 47 patients were excluded in the, um, in the, uh, in the vaccine group and about three, I think it was, in the placebo group, a very, very large imbalance in the number of people that were excluded for protocol violations. By the way, the similar kind of imbalance also existed in the 001 study, in the adult study, the numbers were like 300 and something, and I can't remember what, what, what the two numbers, but it was in like the, 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 the couple of hundred range. Not, but that was a much larger study than this study. Okay, the point is you've got 47 imbalance and three, 47 versus three. They haven't explained why those, there are many more exclusions in one than the other. If some of those exclusions really weren't exclusions, right, really they should have been included, but maybe they did get COVID and that's why they were excluded, okay? Okay, those, that 16 <laughs> and 3 number can very easily change to a number that's not 16 yes. and 3, okay? And, 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 and I just want to say, as you're talking about this, if people think like, wow, you know, does it, you know, it's speculative, we don't know. Well, two things. Number one, they're the ones that need to verify. They're the ones pushing yes. and approving this. Yes. You know, yes. it's not it's not our job to affirmatively prove that it's 0% effective and is going to kill 100% of the people. It's they have to show that it's safe and effective. And number Absolutely. two... And number two, this is no longer January, February anymore. We have 10 months of better than a study, real world reality. And the reality is we're not seeing the effectiveness. And in fact, in some places, we're seeing particularly after they do have a big critical mass of um, take up on the shot, uh, an explosion of cases. Okay, so okay, okay, it does John, lend hang on, hang credence. On, hang on, hang on. John, you're, you're yeah. running ahead. You, 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 that, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's another three hours. Okay. Let's, 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 uh, yes, you're right. But let, let's 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 but let's hold, stick to hold, the trial hold, design. Hold, yeah. hold that. Hold that. Hold that point. Let's let's get the, the fundamental question that you just raised just a moment ago, which is a very important question. Is is that this is not you know we're we're speculating about this. Okay. This is a normal. This is a normal question of analysis okay this what uh, the question i'm asking is a normal question and, I, and i'm going to tell you how it is normally dealt with okay this i'm going to tell you what is normal procedure okay this is not speculative now if you have a very large imbalance of exclusions for whatever reason okay okay number one that the, the, they, they have to show what those reasons are they have to show in detail fda needs to ask those questions and they haven't because they said they've not verified the analysis they haven't even asked those questions, okay? This is normal. This is normal. This is not some weirdo speculation. Yeah. This is normal. Number two, number two, there's something called an intention to treat analysis. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Okay. This is really important and for, for, you, for your, you and your listeners to, to, to understand, okay? This, a normal procedure, and you can look at many, many papers, okay, uh, on on the on COVID and any and any clinical study of any kind really okay, you have what is called a per protocol analysis, which means which means that you only consider the patients in your analysis that actually stuck to the conditions of the protocol. We had to do this followed by this followed by this followed by this, and during a clinical study, it is normal and um, you know it, 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 it's sort of part of life that for various reasons that no the uh, very innocent reasons. Protocols can get violated for very innocent reasons that, that, that's no one's fault, okay? I mean, we're not talking about fraud here. We're just talking about things that can happen sure. in the course of a study normally with no one at fault, okay? But, so we have, to we have to determine whether the people who were protocol violators, for innocent reasons, whether those, their data from those people 
should be aggregated with the people who didn't have protocol violations. Okay? And on the one hand, you can say, well, they, they violated the protocol, this and this and this should happen. So really, really, it's not fair to include their data in the final aggregated results. Okay? And that's, and that's, and that's an okay thing to say. Okay? That's normal to say. And so we do what is called a per protocol analysis. So we say the people who followed the protocol, you know, or with very, very minor, you know, small differences, okay, the, the results are like this, okay? And so what, what, um, what Pfizer have done is, is essentially, uh, you know, I can't say that with certainty, but essentially provided, provided us with what is called a per-protocol analysis, okay? The other side of the coin, again, this is normal practice here. I'm not telling you any strange out of the, you know, galaxy kind of stuff. This is normal practice. Is the normal practice says, well, you know, well, all these protocol violators, well, maybe they really should be included in the study. And what if we did include their data in the study? What would the results look like then? Okay. And that is called an intention to treat analysis because you mm. can, once that person was random, even, even they were randomized to receive the drug, not even whether they received the drug, but let's say they were randomized. Once they agreed to be in the study, they signed the form consent. And, and, the, and the, the pharmacy or whoever it was uh, pulled the, the, the random randomization code uh, for that person and said, okay, this person is assigned to this group or that group. Once they get randomized to the treatment, even if they, and, and then they decide to drop out or they die or whatever happens, even before they really get the drug, that person, once they're randomized, is in theory an intent to treat person, okay? And, and so even at that level, Okay, and there's different levels of doing this, but even at that level, okay, that per, such a person should be included in what is what is called an intention to treat analysis. Okay, and and so and then you can go, you obviously got different levels of intention to treat. Well, maybe the ones that are really bad violators, the ones that were a little bit violators, you know, and you and you get all gradations. But but in the extreme, you should include everyone that was that was at least randomized into the study, regardless of how they dropped out of the study. Okay. And then what you do is you compare the results from the per protocol analysis with the intention to treat analysis. And you say, even if we include all those, all those protocol violators, are the results radically different or not? Okay. And this is a normal mm. procedure. This is normal. Okay. Normal. That, that, that companies have to present their per protocol analysis. They have to present their intention to treat analysis. They often do what is called sensitivity analyses that says, well, what, you know, maybe we've got an imbalance of, uh, you know, people more Sandal. female, more male, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, what yes. if there were? What if we corrected the balance this way and this way and this way? What would the, what, what what how how sensitive are the results to that particular variable that we had no control over because it turned out that more, there were more women than men, or there were more people that had such a certain comorbidity or something that was beyond the control of the study? Okay, so they have to do what are called sensitivity analyses as well. Okay, none of that was done. None of that was done. And especially that there was there was a major imbalance between the protocol violators, the 47 approximately versus the three. OK, at least they have to present an intention to treat analysis and they have to show why in, in detail, you know, why those are really um, exclusions. And given the fact that that the, the, the person administering the dose, they did say that the that many of those violations had to do with the, the uh, violations in the in the dilution or the, the, the reconstitution of the of the. Um, of the vial, okay, um, it had to do with something to do with, do with that. Well, if it was truly blinded, then, then what they would have done is they would have had vials that were, that were vaccine that were frozen, they would have had vials that were placebo saline that were frozen, and the person thawing them out 
wouldn't know the difference. Okay, if they knew the mm. difference, okay, maybe they said, well, you know, uh, maybe you know we don't like the look. Oh, it's going to be given to this person, and they look a bit sick, and you know, maybe you know we shouldn't be giving it to this person. You know, blah blah blah. So maybe uh, maybe I, I mixed up the vials wrong. Maybe I put the wrong dose in. So maybe I should just exclude this person entirely. Even innocently, that could happen. Not even not even talking about if someone deliberately did that, but even subconsciously, sure. okay, a person could do that. That's why it has to be double blinded, even at that even at that point. And there are ways that you could have done that easily and protected against that in the study, and they don't appear to have done that. So for all of those very technical reasons, with, without even invoking any type of deliberate misconduct, okay. For, for just yes. normal reasons why you do things double-blindedly, because there could be innocent uh, inclusion of bias into the study, for even innocent reasons, that's why you have to look very, very carefully at those 16 and the three numbers, because they could easily change to, to or the, it's really 3 and 32, that they could easily change to numbers that are, you know, 20 and 10 or, or 16 and 16 or whatever they are, right? And, and bring down the es estimate of efficacy from 91% to a number much lower than that. Remember, we're not even talking about serious cases. This is, this is non-serious cases. That's a whole different question, okay? But sure. that, then, that then feeds into the risk-benefit analysis. Okay, now I'm going to mention another point. Another point is that, is that in, in the risk-benefit analysis, okay, I'm, I'm just going to pull the number. So, I, so I'm going to, I'm, I've got my, you know, on a slide in my computer here, when, which I know exactly where it is. Here it is. It's right in front of me, okay? So, so um, you know, people on, on the listening to this can do the math themselves, but they need to go to Table 14 of FDA's risk-benefit analysis, and they and, and and they can go to the slide that was presented by Dr. Ball on and the in the uh, in the FDA's review of the data. And I'm going to read the numbers, and then you can do the math themselves uh, while they're listening. So, so here's the numbers. So you had 16. I mean, we have to get into the weeds of this, okay? You have to get into the weeds of this for people to really understand this. Then they can see they can do the maths themselves. They're not difficult maths, and they can see the numbers right in front of them, and they can ask the question on their own. They don't need me. They don't need you to do it for yep. them. They can do this. So, so I want people to do this on their own. It's not that difficult. So you, you, you're going to see that there's 16 patients out of 663 patients, and if you can follow the math and tell me if, you know, if, if I'm doing this correctly or not, there's 16 out of 16 Pay, sorry, 16 out of 663 placebo patients that developed COVID after seven days after dose two. Okay, the, the, the time delay, we're, we're going to ignore that problem. That's a different problem, okay? So we, we take 16 divided by 16, sorry, 16 divided by 663, and we get to a certain fraction, okay? Then we take in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the vaccine group, three out of 1305, okay, uh, got, got, got COVID. So we subtract the two fractions from one another, and, now, and then we multiply by a million. And that's the number of cases, of cases, not, not, we're not talking about serious cases, but all cases that we prevent yeah. per million, and we get to a number 21,833. Someone can do the math, they can check me on that. I apologize if I'm wrong. Now, then, then, then you go to FDA's Table 14. I know you've seen it, because I, I saw an article that you, you mentioned this. And, and there's a, in the first column of the table, males and females, it says prevented COVID cases modeled in, in uh, 5 to 11 years old uh, per million, okay? And scenario yep, got one... got it up right here. Okay, so you saw scenario number one, 45,773, right? You, you've got that? Yep. You see that number? And then 54,000, 2,000, 58,000, 45, 45. Ignoring scenario three, which is just, you know, that, let's ignore that one, okay? Because that's, 
that's uh, that's actually showing um, a risk of the vaccine over benefit. But we're just, we're talking about the ones where the, the the five out of six where FDA say there's a risk over benefit. So I just told you we're doing that little calculation that according to Pfizer's numbers, right? There 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 is an estimated benefit of of prevented COVID cases of twenty one thousand eight hundred thirty three. Now I ask you to do very simple maths in your head and tell me what the approximate ratio of any of these numbers. 54,000, 45,000, 58,000. What's the approximate ratio of those 58,000 to the 21,000 and change numbers? The approximate ratio ranges between 2.1 and 2.7. In other words, FDA have just overestimated based on Pfizer's own numbers, right, how many prevented COVID cases there are by at least two wow. or even close to three. And that's before we get to other problems with overestimation that we, we, we're not even going to talk about sure. at the moment. But just, just on that number alone. Okay, right? Did you follow? Did you follow the math? Oh yeah, and and that's going to make all the difference when you overlay that against the myocarditis risk. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Two, yeah. Two, we, two haven't to got, we haven't even got to that yet. I mean, we haven't even we haven't even got to that. So, 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 um, so anyway. But when okay, but I'll I'll summarize that because you know we, the time is short. But basically, let me just tell you, I'm going to pull up my. Here we go. So, so, um, so when you. So in the in the most extreme case, and in that uh, table, uh, you know, the FDA table that we were just looking at, Daniel, uh, the most extreme case of risk to benefit is if you look at scenario six, you see uh, hospitalizations now, which is really the one that the, you've really got to go on. 192 in the in the in the benefits versus 29 in the risk. You see that in the bottom line of your table 14 table. You so this see is that? scenario six. Yes, it's scenario six. So 192 divided by 29 is 6.6, .6, I believe. Okay, is that does that sound right? Right. Yes. Okay. So so the 6.6 .6 number is the number we is 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 the biggest number that we need to sort of consider in an FDA sort of worst case scenario or best case scenario from the point of view of the vaccine. The 6.6 .6 number is, is is the number we have to do, deal with. So so right away because they've overestimated the cases. You know, by in that particular scenario, it's 2.1 the ratio. We have to we have to reduce that 6.6 .6 by by a factor of 2.1 right there. So now already we, we're at 2. Point, we're at 3.3, .3, and of course that's going to affect all the other uh, scenarios as well. That's that's right there. Okay. Then you've got. Um, I'm not going to even. Go, I'm not even going to touch the myocarditis at the moment. Believe it or not, I don't even have to get to that one because because there are other problems. And I think I saw an article just now that you produced on somewhere i think it was your article um, yes yes this is my column today the, the numbers are much greater incidentally in every other country that studied this it's kind of funny how america's numbers of myocarditis are always lower right right, right. but hang on, hang on i'm not i'm not going to touch myocarditis we got let's let's talk about the 6.6 .6 number okay so then then there's an overestimate then, then they haven't estimated the effect of natural immunity and the fda nowhere reviewed, nowhere in any of these studies no, nowhere. So, 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 so FDA talked about a 42% seropositive uh, incidence, which means that the 42%, at least it could be higher, at least of children have antibodies, okay, to, um, to, to COVID. And, and since everyone has agreed, including Janet well, Woodcocking, including Doran Fink from the FDA, they said there's no immune correlate of, of protection. We don't know what antibodies really mean. So, so you can't dismiss the fact they're seropositive because you're using antibodies to justify why why there's why why you should have uh, <laughs> why why you should have uh, uh, immunobridging why you should have booster doses why you should uh, why you should do all this you can't have it both ways you can't say well 
uh, we really don't know what the immune protection correlate is, and, and then, and, but then use, use antibody levels and then try and dismiss that they're seropositive patients. You, you can't have it both ways. You, you, you know, you stick to your story one way or the other. So, so when you adjust for that, that's another 1.72 times. When you look at how they've improperly modeled the waves, you know, you have waves and, and troughs, peaks and waves of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the pandemic, you, they, they improperly modeled that. There's also how many patients were hospitalized uh, with COVID versus for COVID. And, 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 and the conservative estimate of that is, is 20%, okay? It, there's a CDC but paper. But it's probably that, a lot higher with kids pro- where, yeah, a lot, well, lot more that, incidentals. That, right. So there's a CDC paper from June, I think it is. Um, first author is Havers, I believe, okay, who was one of the presenters at the... Um, at the at the at the um, at the at the, uh, at, the, uh, at, the uh, at the FDA at the FDA meeting, but she was from CDC. Okay, okay. Um, in that paper, I believe it says that the, there could be even a forty-five percent, um, you know, um, error in, in in the four versus with COVID cases. So, yes. so I'm but I'm just using I'm just using the eighty percent number, not the forty-five. Yes. And, and, and the UK data, by the way, there's data from UK that seemed to indicate it's probably more like sixty percent. Um, right. at least in the UK. So certainly um, with kids, there's also in JAMA, I forget the lead author, but there was a publication in JAMA that mentioned 50% of all pediatric hospitalizations for COVID had co-infection, which right. is another dead giveaway that there's something else likely something going else. on. But with the right. universal testing, right. They'll, right. they'll rope in the incidentals. Okay, so, but anyway, I've used, the, I've used the, the 20% number. I haven't used the 50% number, okay? But it could, it could be higher. And then on the other end of the scale, they're only considering myocarditis. They're not considering any other serious events. So we looked at the, the VAERS data, and, we, and they pulled out serious events, you know, and, and approximately, it, it's not quite, but it's approximately um, nearly double, um, sorry, nearly equal, uh, meaning the number of serious non-myocarditis events are approximately equal to the serious, myo, excuse me, the serious myocarditis events. So, 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 so that's not even included in that part of the equation. And um, plus in this scenario, um, which one of the scenarios, they actually downgrade, um, downgrade the, the myocarditis for some unknown reason. Anyway, when you consider so, all of that. So scenario it, six, they, they say that a lower excess myocarditis. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's it. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. Okay. That's really important. Okay. So we need, so we need to look at that number. Now, this, what I'm going to tell you now is another bombshell revelation okay <laughs> you, you have to watch you have to watch every minute of these hearings you have to listen to what the questions wow. are you have to hear how they're answered okay because you, you have to listen to this and you're sitting down for this i want you to sit down for this okay get this so so the fda reviewer dr uh, yang i believe her name was okay presented this this uh, in in a slide format this uh, scenario one two three five six okay and, and they're estimating here, in, in other than scenario six, they've got 106 myocarditis excess cases per million, and, it, and, they've, and they've halved that in, 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 in scenario six to 53 for some reason, okay? Okay, now, here's what happened. The CDC person, you ready for this? The CDC person who sits as a, as a quote-unquote independent person on, on the FDA advisory panel, I mean, how can that be independent, regarded as independent? That's another question. But the CDC person, Dr. Cohn, asked the FDA person who presented this analysis, tell me where you got your numbers from, 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 the, uh, from the rates of myocarditis. 
they seem rather high and much higher than, than the VAERS. Okay, the, did you hear that question? Wait a minute, the CDC and the FDA <laughs> weren't talking about this? What do you mean you don't know where you got... CDC doesn't know where FDA got their numbers from, okay? <laughs> okay. Did, did, did you hear what happened there? Okay. So, so they pulled it out of thin air? No, 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 no. They... they didn't pull it out of thin air. It gets better. Listen to this. <laughs> I mean, you have to listen to this because the lady giving the presentation, I, I thought was, you know, she seemed, so, she seemed like a very conscientious and very thorough person, okay? Uh, she 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 has a very thick you know non-American accent, so it is a little hard to you know for me at least. Others may differ, but at least it was hard for me. And I apologise. Uh, I, I don't mean any any intentional uh, you know ethnic slight at, at all. Please understand that. But 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 it is a little hard to 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 understand the accent. But but very much worth listening to. And I want to stress that is really worth listening to this. So she says, well, uh, actually the VAERS data are underreported. Wait a minute. FDA just said, listen to this. FDA just said the VAERS data are likely to be underreported. <laughs> okay. Did you hear that? Okay. All right. Now, how, by how much have they been underreported? Okay. That's my question. So you have to go to Pfizer's presentation, right? Did you do that? Go to the Pfizer presentation. I think, I believe it was Dr. Gruber. And um, I don't have that slide pulled up in front of me right now, but from my recollection, Pfizer um, basically puts this 106 number on a, on a certain slide because Pfizer is actually trying to say, well, scenario four is the best, is, is the one that we think is the most uh, accurate one. Okay. So on Pfizer's sort of story of that, they, they put the 106 number, but then they, that's from this database that FDA says they've got their own database. FDA are telling CDC, We've got our own database. Did, did you hear that? Did you hear that? So everyone's familiar with VAERS at a CDC, and you're saying they were revealing that the FDA has their own database. They have some other source of the data that's the source of this 106 number, and it's something called the Optum. <laughs> OP, did you hear this? OPTUM database. So that, that no one has seen. Except, except now, and, and if you look at the Pfizer slide from Dr. Gruber, it says Optum, O-P-T-U-M, 106, which is this number over here that's on the FDA, um, FDA uh, risk-benefit analysis scenario, one through six. And okay. is there a sense of where they get this data from? It's from like a health plan. It's like some like health plan, like a HMO or something like that. I'm not exactly sure, okay? But something like, something like that. It's from that health plan type data. Now, listen to this. On that very same slide, it gives what, what Pfizer is reporting as VAERS's estimate of myocarditis cases, and, the, and there's another database called the VSD. You, you're familiar with that one, right? Yes. Okay, so you've got three databases that we're going to talk about now. We've got VAERS, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System that most people have heard about, uh, and we know all the issues of that, that thing, uh, that database. The estimate on the Gruber slide is, a, is 22, I think, per million, right, Myocarditis cases, according to VAERS, according to the VSD, the, 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 it's 57. And according to Optum, which is the number that FDA are using, it's 106. So 106 divided by 22 is 4.8, I believe. Okay. So right there, right there, we <laughs> finally have, we finally have, you know, and Steve Kirsch, God bless him, has been talking about this forever, right? Right. We finally have some admission from some government agency that there is an underreporting in VAERS, and, and it's at least 4.8. It could be higher. 
but let's go with 4.8 because now we have Pfizer are telling you this, not David Wiseman, not Steve Kirsch, not Daniel Horowitz, not Peter McCulloch. Pfizer have just told you this, right? That there's a 4.8 difference between theirs reporting and Optum, whatever that means. It could, I mean, it could even be higher than that. We don't know how underreported Optum is, but just assuming the Optum is correct, according to the FDA, it's more correct. Okay, there's a 4.8 underreporting. So why on earth? Which makes sense. Which makes sense because if that is like you're saying, sur- retrospective surveillance data from more like medical billing type of things, what we've seen from several reports from CMS. Uh, data, billing, uh, a DOD report, HHS report, it really does seem to signal a universe of adverse events much greater right. than theirs. Right. So that right. would that would jive. Right. But, but now we have a number, you know, and, and no one's been able to give you a number before. I mean, you know, and, and just take just, you know, we've tried to estimate underreporting in other ways. And, you know, you've probably seen like a 41 number and a, and a 100 number and a, and a and, and yeah, the generic numbers, different yeah. different numbers, and and you know it it, it is hard to estimate. Uh, I've I've used a method that the CDC had published uh, based on comparing results in clinical trials with 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 uh, VAERS numbers and so on and so forth, and and it does differ for different categories of events. You can't say just because there's this number in this event, it applies to all kinds of events. It doesn't. Is there's, there's going to be differential underreporting uh, for different things, but there is underreporting. So so. Um, like for deaths, for example, again, this is we can't assign causality in the VAERS. We understand that. For deaths, I've estimated that the underreporting conservatively is between five and fifteen, and I prefer to report that as a range rather than a, than a, than a single, you know, point estimate because you know you do have to give some some level of confidence into all kind of information. So. Sure. So, 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 so you're saying five to fifteen, and if there's eighteen thousand reported deaths, that would that could potentially get you over a hundred thousand. Well, well, hang on. There's not eight. Okay, okay, one second. The eighteen thousand death number. Again, I've got to correct that. I mean, this is really important for people to understand this. I've seen the eighteen thousand number. It's probably half of that, and it's, under, it's important to understand why. Okay, in the VAERS system, uh, the, the di- you can pull out different um, uh, geographical um, reporting. So if you look at all locations, um, I believe that's an 18,000 number, somewhere, somewhere in that range, okay? You, what you have to do is look at the next filter in that, in that pull-down, which is U.S. territories and, and something, right, which is, which is roughly half of that number, okay? The reason why you've got the other number is because a manufacturer, let's say Pfizer, who receives a report from another country, right, of a death or whatever, or certain categories of events, they have to report those into theirs. But into, have, to the U.S. system, got so, it. So, you, so, you, so, so when you, people say, oh, there's 18,000 deaths reporting there, yes, there are, but, you, but, but in order to understand what the context of that is, you really, you really have to look at the U.S. numbers because then we, then we know, you know there were so many doses that have been given and so many people were vaccinated. To get the so right on, denominator. To get the right denominator. So, so, so it, 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 I mean, it's not wrong to say 18,000, but I think it's a little, it doesn't really convey the, the picture as, as accurately as it should be. So, okay, so back, so... So, but I, 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 I thought the deaths are, are under deaths are under between five and fifteen. I could be wrong, but that's my estimate based on a CDC methodology that I have I used. It could be a different number for other categories of events. And and there was a paper by Miller, uh, I think, uh, can't remember, in the last couple of years, CDC paper that looks at underestimate underestimates in other kinds of vaccines 
that ranged between, uh, not for death, but like for anaphylaxis and Guillain-Barre syndrome, and I think those were the two. And, and, they, and they had an underestimate of between uh, like 1.2 times and about eight times in, that, in, those, in those adverse events, okay? In those kind of adverse events. So, so you know, the, the 41 number comes from another paper. You know, I can't tell you, but, I, but, I, but even if you go with the conservative numbers, right, um, then the numbers are startling. And, and I do want to address the deaths in general because we have to split that out by different pools, and that's another that's another conversation that we need to look at as well. But sure. So, I, I so we're, we're, we're do we running get, do we against this, this point here? A, a, a clock here, but what to, to sum it up um, before we end this, and we'll have to do a part two to this. You, what, what you've presented is just, just even a small synopsis of data within their own reporting in the Pfizer FDA documents, how their own data is bogus, or at least the the narrative that they're building off of it, before we even get to any questions of impropriety Correct. and breaking laws Correct. and the fact that, that there really are no guardrails to them committing these crimes and they wouldn't get in trouble and the entire system is is pulling for this. But let me let me I, we're out of time. I have to ask you this as we close up. Um, what you are describing to us today in your field of scientific data, clinical trials, developing vaccines is the equivalent of in the field of cardiology. If all of a sudden a bunch of hotshot cardiologists would say, we're going to start doing heart surgery by flipping someone on their back and entering through the back. Okay, it, it's it's not like a little bit different. It is mind-blowing how this has never been done before. How is it that everyone in your field seems to be bought into this? Every, I mean, this is the problem. Any layman who speaks to a scientist or a doctor, they're all like, yeah, you better get this, even a four-year-old, even, you know, and, and they buy into it even more than the average layman. How is it the people you worked with at J&J and the people that um, had to so painstakingly develop a proper uh, trial and and really pay attention to like one in a million safety signals when this just blows it out of the water and somehow they're not bothered by it? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to correct. I didn't work on vaccines. I just want to make make make, make, make that sure. clear. I worked on the medical process. But yeah, I mean, this this is mind-blowing. And, and, and you know, there's probably a number of reasons, and I'm, I'm going to try and give you a couple of really quick reasons. I think there's a lot of fear, and, and a lot of people do recognize this in, in the scientific medical community, but they're fearful for their, you know, their jobs that they can't if they speak out, you know, and they get their license revoked. A lot of the scientists are, are very highly dependent on NIH grant, the grant, the, the grant system, and so, um, you know, the, you know, for them to speak out uh, probably won't look so good in their next NIH grant application. Uh, then there are just people who don't have the time to do this. I mean, you know, you've got to delve. I mean, we've delved into the weeds here. You know, and and yep. and how many people do that? So so they're, they're, people are just taking the the top line numbers that that, that are getting thrown at them. It's, and, a, it's and a lot easier just to say Pfizer. You know, we we joked around. There's a game of Simon says. Now it's a game of Pfizer says or Merck says. Right. You know, right, they said right, it's right. it's over ninety percent. And like we were dealing with Molnupiravir, Merck's new drug. Oh, they said there's no adverse events and it's the, right. the, you know fifty percent right. effective. Right. And it's like yeah, there's nothing more to look at. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, th- I think, I think, I, I mean, I think if there's one thing that I mean, there's so many things that just, 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 uh, just beyond belief. The, 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 the fact the FDA at the bottom of their slide says that we haven't verified the data. I mean, F- that we are we are supposed to trust our public institutions. That's their job to do this, 
And, it, and, even, and it, even, if, even if they verified it honestly, and, they, and then maybe the results are good, I have no idea, okay? But, but, we, but we have to trust in our, you know, we have a, we're built on a fundamental trust that our public institutions are serving the public and they're doing a certain job. That they've admitted they've not done the job. I mean, that is just, I, I can't even, be, how can you even begin to, to explain that? And then the analogy of the car seat, you know, would you go, would you buy a car seat that, that had a label on it that's for your child that said, oh, you know, uh, the government haven't, uh, haven't checked the uh, accuracy of the safety test yeah. done by this manufacturer. You wouldn't put your child in such a car seat. Why would you, why no, would you I, give them a vaccine that basically has the same label? I mean, that, I, that's, but that's, this that's is that's the standard. This is the standard they've used not just to green light it, but to promote it and in some cases mandate it. Right. Well, that's and even that yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. that that is what is so shocking. A final question before we end the end it for the day. Um, as we stand here right now, just you looking at the preponderance of evidence, and there's a lot of black holes, a lot of unknowns. What are some of the most concerning safety signals? Is it the myocarditis, or is that not even the worst problem? Uh, uh, (laughs) No, I don't think it's the worst problem. No, I don't think it's the worst problem. Unfortunately, I mean, that's not the worst problem. Uh, You know, we have no uh, long-term story about this. These are gene therapy products. Uh, Moderna said in their second quarter report last year, this is regulated by FDA as a gene therapy product. There are higher stringency standards of looking at long-term consequences of autoimmune diseases, hematological diseases, cancers. Uh, the label, package insert says no cancer studies were done this. We don't know what the long-term consequences are. But what is happening now, and this is a sneak preview, is that now there is more and more data emerging from different directions that suggest even now that the, the all-cause mortality, all-cause mortality is increasing in, in, in the population in general that has some correlation with vaccination. Okay, the, the data need to be developed, but there is, sure. there is, there is developing data right now not in five years, not in 10 years, that, that, that there's something seriously wrong right with now. It. Right now. And, and particularly that, with males. But, well, no, no, not, that's just the myocarditis story. But, 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 but in general. But you're saying beyond that. Beyond that. Beyond that, there's, 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 there's some evidence that, that even, in, again, this all has to be developed. I'm, I'm not saying this is final data. But even in children, the fact of vaccinating adults can have an adverse effect on children. And there's some evidence about that as well. So, 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 you know, the FDA cannot just be throwing data at us. This, there has to be much higher level of public scrutiny. The data have to be released. They have to be serious, in, really independent people looking at the data really, really carefully. We cannot be injecting this in children. And, and, and I'm, I'm, my opinion right now, we can't inject it in adults. And here's why. Here's your bottom line now. They have changed the formulation. The, the formulation is changing, even for adults. It's untested. It was specifically stated. In the in the Pfizer question and answer session, that the vaccine that the vaccine they tested in their children in the children's study was not the one that is now being used with this TRIS buffer that is untested, and there are and there are significant again safety potential concerns that as of normal practice normal practice FDA should have demanded certain types of studies they haven't been done wow. again a violation of public trust. Okay, we so cannot have mandates. The- this needs to be stopped. The FDA needs to be brought to account right now, and this has to be come out in a public uh, forum and not given me, me and, and the other people 
a measly three minutes to talk about it. A measly people- three minutes, which is which is why we've been pushing here in our state legislative project. State legislatures really need to pick up the slack where the federal government right, isn't. Right, they right. need to hold hearings. They need to investigate this. And certainly you're someone I'm going to recommend to my friends and a lot of these state legislatures. Um, because you brought that up, I'm going to have to go double overtime um, for one more thing. Okay. You talked about the changing of formulations. And, and this is something that was brought <laughs> up by some other people. Right. And I want to get your take on, on the – how much of a concern is this? So one of the things I've noticed here is that if you take together just in a most basic layman's term, the understanding of the mechanism of action, it's really dangerous. You know, creating a pathogenic spike, it makes sense that it would cause these hematological issues. It makes sense that it would do a lot of what we're seeing, people just dropping. But then, as, as bad as it is and as unprecedented, the numbers, however many there are, but then there are a lot of people that reasonably just walk away from it with nothing. Right. Is there a legitimate concern that there is some degree of diversity among the various shipments and vials and there's just differing, I don't right, know, context right. and certainly certainly dosage going around that we wouldn't know? Right, is right. there a okay. legitimate concern about yes, that? Yes, there are. Okay, so, so um, wow. Um, so, so first of all, I, there is some report that's going around and you've probably seen it. That says something like five percent of the batches are responsible for I don't know what the number is hundred percent of the deaths or some, or something yes. like that some some number like that um, you know um, Jessica Rose Dr Jessica Rose who by the way I've spoken to in great detail and I'm I'm very confident that she's an extremely careful and, and diligent person in terms of handling the data so I do place a lot of trust in what she has to say she she said listen um, you know we, the, the 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 data on the on the batch to batch information that's in theirs that changes every week. And, and so uh, because of the, the way that VAERS is reported and the way the data gets overwritten every week in the VAERS system, she said, really, it's very difficult to draw that. It, it may be true, but it, it, it's difficult to draw the conclusion about, you know, certain batches are responsible for certain, you know, uh, higher incidence and events. So, so we just have sure. to look at that particular thing in context. But let's talk about the, the, the buffer change and, and why that's important. Um, I'm going to be a little bit hyperbolic here, but again, in the old days, you know, if you if you change, excuse the expression, if you change the color of your toilet paper in your manufacturing facility, FDA need to know about it. Okay, that's a little bit of a hyperbole, but 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 I think it gives you the the idea that if I was manufacturing, if I, if I was sitting at J and J as I have done, and we were contemplating a, a fairly minor manufacturing change, we would be we would expect to be asked as as we should be, right. Um, how is this change going to change the safety and efficacy of the product that you are already selling? And that's a, and that's a very important question. Okay, so to answer that, um, what appears to have happened, if you look at the documents, that that the Pfizer have done some analytical. I think they've called it called it called it called it analytically comparable. They've done some sort of chemistry kind of uh, tests, which are which are fine. Um, you know, to look at uh, the, the messenger RNA content and the, and the lipid nanoparticle content, and, and and nothing changes, and so on and so forth. And based on that only, FDA said, okay, we agree with you. This is a minor change. You don't have to do anything. I I would have I know from my own experience with other kinds of products that even seemingly small, um, you know, uh, formulation changes could end up in very large biological changes. And that's again, and what I'm telling you here is not hyperbole. This is not. You know some some weird um, you know request that I'm making. I I if I was in charge of that product, I was in charge of the R and D for that product. I would be insisting that my scientists right now would begin in vitro studies, animal studies, and even you know in, in potentially looking at the clinical situation to look at 
how the buffer changes changes how the buffer the change in the buffers changes changes the uptake of the of the lipid nanoparticles from the site of the injection and how it changes the distribution um, around the body mm. and how it affects the transfection rate of of the uh, RNA into the cells. You know, ignoring the, the the spike protein you know issue, but whatever the whatever was in there, how it affects the transfection rate and how it could theoretically do that is through several mechanisms. Um, the, the tris is is is, is um, the, the lipid nanoparticles are have on their outer coat what is called an ionizable um, uh, um, lipid, which means that they can interact with, with other things that are sort of potentially ionizable in the opposite direction. I'm just trying to give a very brief chemistry overview sure. and I'm sacrifice a little bit of chemistry detail. But, but the point is that the tris actually could interact with that outside um, you know, you know, lipid uh, ionizable group in such a way as to change its overall charge. It's what's called the zeta potential and, and other things in the way that the, it changes how tasty that lipid nanoparticle is to macrophages and other cells that are, are going to take it up take it into the immune system or how it gets in how it gets transported around, around the body we, we simply don't know and that has to be studied okay so that's part one part two which is actually even more fundamental uh, question it goes like this the manufacturing change is supposedly to improve the stability of the of the of the of the vaccine um, the, if you look at the storage conditions uh, right now on the FDA and or the CDC website, it says it has to be stored at minus 80 degrees and it has to be stored here and very, very difficult, it's called cold chain management condition of storage. That's very difficult to manage. You have to make sure that the, the refrigerators are properly calibrated and there's checks and blah, blah, blah. And you have to make sure that every batch, you know, was really at the temperature it's supposed to be on. And so uh, right now we really have no assurance that by the time that, um, that 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 vaccine gets from the factory to to the to the end clinic because of differences in in storage and transportation things because because things can go wrong in, in trying to keep things at very low temperature. Okay, we don't know now that the 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 doses that actually get into the clinic are really the full thirty microgram dose. Some people could have really only got a twenty microgram dose or a fifteen or a twenty five microgram mm. dose, and then if that if that product is allowed to stand for six hours uh, after refrigerator after uh, you know thawing out by the by the end of the six hours the person getting the dose at the end of the six hours versus the person that got the dose at the beginning of the six hours could actually have got a different dose so we already wow. could have differences in how much effective dose people have gotten up until now which could account for differences in, in efficacy and safety you know with a variety of factors now now, if you tell me that you're going to give me a formulation that is more stable, <clears throat> okay, that means that the person at the beginning of the dose day could actually have got a better effective dose than they were getting in the old buffer. And the same is true at the person at the end of the day. So, so now, so now the, because we've supposedly improved the stability, the effective dosing of these people could actually be higher than it was before. So we may very well see an uptick in adverse event cases because people are getting higher doses. Okay. So you're saying on the one hand, it would probably dump in more antibodies, at least temporarily, than maybe the previous version. Well, well, it could but be more with that comes more risk. A better immune, yeah, to the extent that, the, you know, the extent that there is an immune response, it could improve the efficacy. But at the same time, it would, it would, it would, it would reduce the safety. Now, what, I, I got to connect this to the, to the Moderna story, because, you know, the Moderna is 100 micrograms in the first dose, 50 micrograms in the second dose. And overall, Much it has a slightly better efficacy uh, you know, uh, profile and a better uh, durability profile than than the than the yep. than the Pfizer one, right? 
So, so the really it, the need it wanes the, lower. It wanes. It wanes less. Maybe it wanes less because it really was better to begin. You know, better in the antibody or the immune response to, to begin with. Now, so so that's part one. Part two, and again, you have to look at the dates. This is unbelievable. I'm sorry, I'm going over time, but but so October the put this date in your head. October the 26th was, was the date of the Verbach, Verbach meeting. Okay, you remember that. Okay, October the, that was a Tuesday. Friday, October the 29th. Friday, October the 29th, FDA authorizes the use of the vaccines in the children. And at the same time, they authorize the, the manufacturing change from the old buffer to the new buffer. And at the same time, that also includes changing the old buffer to the new buffer, even in the adult formulation. That was on Friday, mm. to October the 29th. Okay, right now, the evening. And, of and by Friday, the way, that's important to keep in mind because it's not just the kids getting it now. You have a lot of adults getting third shots. Well, yeah, we don't know what the rollout is going to be. And okay, we know. You know, they've got they've got they've got vaccines in inventory, and uh, you know, who's going to get the old dose, the new dose? We don't know. That's that's another <laughs> nightmare. That's another nightmare. Okay, let's like, <laughs> not, not go there yet. Okay, but this is this 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 is, this is the issue. So. So October the 29th, Friday, October the 29th, FDA has a whole press conference. We did a thorough and, uh, and, and transparent review, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's very important. Racial inequities, uh, access, blah, blah, blah. Everyone needs to choose and da, 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 da. You know, uh, we're going to improve this. Okay, October the 29th. Evening of October the 29th, FDA sends a letter on a Friday to Moderna. And they say to Moderna, you know, you applied to uh, get immense youth organizations for, I think, you know, 12 to 16 or something. And then even they have a program for five to 11 year olds based on European or international safety uh, information that we've received. OK, we're going to delay that, um, you know, uh, approval or authorization for uh, until January or something. Right. Because because there are there are there's information about particularly myocarditis from the Moderna use in foreign countries. OK, right. wait a minute. Let's just slow down here. So they released this. They released this this uh, letter to Moderna on Friday the 29th, knowing full well, I would imagine, that Moderna can't realistically um, send out a, a notification to their shareholders, which I think they're probably obliged to do until the Monday. So Monday to Friday already is two days of, of news where everyone's going to forget the whole story. So Monday, Moderna put out an announcement saying what FDA told them on Friday. Okay. So now here's the problem. If it's true that the Moderna is really doing this, and by the way, for many analyses, FDA have used Moderna and Pfizer together that considered them in the same breath for some of the analyses because they're so comparable with the mRNA yep. content. Okay, so, so you can't divorce the two and say these are two completely different uh, products because FDA have been, um, you know, for many purposes, sort of looking at them together for, for many purposes. So and you now they approved tell... mix and match, which well, is very yeah, scientific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't don't start on mix and match. That's another story. Let's, <laughs> let's keep out of that. Keep out of that. Keep out of that hole for the moment. Okay. So 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 you can't tell me that on Friday the 29th of October, FDA didn't know about this international data. You know, like you know, they didn't know about this on October the 25th, the day before their Verpac meeting. Why aren't they telling Verpac? Oh, by the way, we've got concerning we've got concerning uh, international data. Especially when, remember that lady I told you about the the, the risk benefit lady and the and the, and the the doctor and the and the and the and the question and answer between the CDC and the FDA. The CDC person asked the FDA person, "Are you looking at foreign databases?" And she and the, and the FDA person said, "Well, we do look at foreign data they, they, databases, but this different population is not comparable." Blah blah blah. Okay, wait a minute. FDA said they're not comparable. We we don't re, we look at them, but we don't you know pay so much attention to them. 
international databases. That was on the that was on the Tuesday. But by the Friday, when they write this letter to the Moderna, they are taking a, they are paying attention to international databases. Make up your mind, FDA. Do we pay attention or do we not pay attention? So, but so wait, 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 wait. The best part here's the best part. Okay, the best part is that if if the reason that for Moderna's increase in myocarditis cases is perhaps because they have a higher effective dose to begin yes. with, right? Then surely, then you surely have to ask the question: by changing the buffer to a more stable Pfizer, you are effectively making the <laughs> Pfizer look more like, like Moderna, Moderna, right? So now, if you have a concern with Moderna, then you have to have the same concern with Pfizer. So, so, so at the same time, where almost all the major European countries are banning the Moderna shot, roughly for those under thirty, we're right. now going to push a Pfizer shot, that which increasingly like is Moderna, that may look more like for Moderna. even younger kids, for even right, younger, right. even a younger cohort. I mean, to me, this just smacks of the fact that Pfizer is just much more powerful in terms of their presence in, in public policy I, I, and politics. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, Moderna. OK, I, I'm not going to. That, that, that's, that's more. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm the political guy. That's beyond but, my pay grade. OK, let's just talk about. You know, you can speculate a lot of different things. I have no idea. Okay, I, I have no idea on that. But the but, but from is, a scientific standpoint, you're saying that you're basically stabilizing Pfizer's um, dosage to come much more in concert with Moderna's at a time when the European countries are, are raising concern and moving away from Moderna for younger people. We're having this dose of Pfizer now approved even for five-year-olds. Right, and 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 the, and the timing of it, and the timing of it. Is incredible. You telling me the FDA didn't know on on October the 29th when they wrote the F that they just found out on the, they woke up on the morning of October the 29th and they just got a memo from from Boris Johnson or, or the Macron or whoever it is in you know in Europe. Oh, we, uh, you know, um, you, there's a problem with Moderna. They, do, you think, do you think that happened on the Friday? No. Did you think it happened on the Thursday? Do you think it happened on Wednesday? Do you think it happened on Tuesday? It happened at least the Tuesday, if not before. And 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 they're supposed to be giving them the totality of scientific yeah. evidence. For the committee to vote on, okay? I find that amazing that, that, that if they say, oh, we didn't know about it until after the Verbach thing, really? I want to see those memos. I want to see when you first find, found out about the Moderna story. See, what you're describing, and this is the problem, um, you're giving all of the mathematical scientific analysis, and this just scrapes the surface. There's obviously a lot more where this came from um, for our audience to know, and they need to check out your work. But the reality is, I get the a thirty thousand foot view. The impression of what they're doing is it's all good. The details don't it, don't matter. I, I get the don't, impression. Don't, don't, don't confuse me with the with the facts. <laughs> I get the impression that it almost doesn't matter. We always think, okay, well, if this thing comes out, and I, I you know, again, we don't know what's what the deal is yet, and I wish him well. But if, God forbid, there's some issue with the California governor, right. you know, all my colleagues are like, oh, man, that's going to end it. I don't think no, it no, would. No, no, I mean, no, no. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's almost like a quasi-religious belief yeah. at this point. And, that, and, and that, that was really embodied through Dr. Rubin's comments where he's like, yeah, the only way to find out is to go and do it anyway, even though um, – and then you had that other doctor that really gave a good summation of how the cost-benefit analysis is, is, is not positive but then voted for it anyway. Um, it's almost like this is what you have to do, and, and it's, it's a nihilism. I, I just – I don't know how we get out of it other than we got to continue. I don't um, know. I don't know. I don't know. Spewing I, I, Daniel, the, I want, the I, truth. I, you mentioned Dr. Rubin, and I can't remember if we mentioned this earlier in the interview, but 
But yes, um, but, but, yes. But, let's but, end on this. Okay, okay, okay. Let's end. Sorry, we're going to go on for. A, so, so you know, the, the, the now infamous, you know, the the, the the phrase that will be will live in history. Actually, I think I think it really will. You know, so we won't know how safe this is. I don't remember the exact words uh, until we start putting this in kids. Okay, the next day, the next day, by a sheer miracle, <clears throat> okay, appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine, of which Dr. Rubin is the editor, the main the chief editor, editor in chief, editor yep. chief, right. Do you know this? Do you know what I'm about to say? Yep, he is the editor-in-chief, but I want our audience to know because I haven't talked about it yet. Okay, okay. By, so Dr. Rubin is, on, is a voting member of the committee that advises the FDA on vaccine. Okay, is that, is that, did I say that correctly? Okay. Yep, the ACIP, that whatever that acronym, no, that no, is the FDA ACIP. committee. No, ACIP is a CDC one. This is a verbat. Oh, jeez, I mixed it okay. up. So, 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 um, okay, so, so by sheer coincidence, the next day, uh, published on October the 27th in the New England Journal of Medicine is the data from Israel, okay, on the adverse events of to do with the vaccine, okay, and 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 you, you're telling me that he didn't know about this paper that was published in his own journal, you know, uh, until the until he woke up and said, oh, that's funny, my journal has just published this this paper this morning. What a strange coincidence. We only discussed this yesterday at the Verbat meeting. You think he didn't know that? Okay, what well, what you have to do is you have to go. <laughs> You have to go into the data there. You have to look at the table. Okay. And the data is stratified by males, females. I mean, split out by males and females. And then they look at myocarditis rates. Now, we've got to do some more homework on this because this is only just hot off the press here. Okay. So, so but they, they, they split out the myocarditis rates, but they lump, like, I think it's like 16 to 40. I can't remember the exact age range. But they lump the, the rates of 16 to 40 together. They don't split them out by like the teenagers and the older, like 20-year-olds and so on, because we know there's a difference when you go pretty, you know, into the teenage range, they're much higher incidence of myocarditis. So they only, they only, they only report a sort of an average, you know, number for, for all these age ranges put together. So my back-of-the-envelope calculations, which I'm going to confirm, suggest that even if you look at those numbers for myocarditis and pericarditis together, okay, that's an average number, which even comes close, comes a little bit close, not quite yet, to the, to the number that the FDA, that 106 number or whatever it was, uh, one of the other numbers, 172 number, I forget what the number is now, um, the FDA using the risk-benefit analysis, okay? If they would have split it out by more granular age ranges, I would, I, I would be very interested to learn if, in fact, those estimates that are in that paper that was peer-reviewed, that the peer reviewers should have demanded those more granular age range information, I would, I would be very interested to learn if, in fact, those estimates that appeared in that paper exceed the ones that FDA used in, the, in, the, in, in their mm. risk-benefit analysis. And here you have a guy whose who's, who's journal controls this data, whose peer reviewers should have picked this up, should have demanded to, 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 to granularize those data, and, 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 and by miracles, it wasn't published on October the 25th. It was published on October the 27th in a meeting on October the 26th when Dr. Ruby says, gee, I don't, oh, we really don't know if this is going to be safe or not. Duh, your journal is about to publish tomorrow some key data that's pretty much deficient in its granularity, and you're telling me you, you don't know? So as offensive as that comment is, by the way, in general, we don't know, even under the best circumstances, if a drug is, how a drug is, is safe you know, once it gets out into much larger numbers. That's true in general. But here we have specific concerns that we already know about. 
That's the difference. Yep. That, that's, that's how you have to put that context in, the thing into context. So Exactly, because we've already been using it on adults and then even teenagers yes. for quite a, quite a while quite already. A while. And right. now you're debating 5 to, to 11. 11 yeah. So, yeah. you know, you're not flying blind anymore. You're there is a lot of hard anymore. data. Right, right, right. Exactly. Hard data you're, on this. Yeah, um, yeah. Folks, the exact quote from, from, again, Dr. Eric Rubin, we're never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is unless we start giving it, and that's just the way it goes. Well, it's up to us. Are we going to allow it to go this way or not? Um, again, we got to fight back. Dr. Uh, Weissman, thanks so much for your, your presentation today. We really want to have you back again. Folks, listen to this over and over again. Send me your questions that you have for Dr. Weissman, and we could discuss this at a later date. Um, I wish you luck in all your work. Where could people find some of your presentations or work? Is there anywhere people could follow you on social media? No, I, I, you know, I, I don't have time to. I don't have time to speak to my. <laughs> I don't have time to speak to my wife, let alone anyone else. <laughs> well, good for you, not uh, getting involved in that uh, stuff. But, but uh, you, you know, I don't know if you have a website, but um, I, I can give you sort of like some links to different things I've done, the, the things that we've posted to FDA, and and, and you can probably. Uh, if, if, can you do that? Is that possible? I don't know. Yes, yes. Well, you, you send it to me, and we'll post it in the show notes. We'll post in the show notes. We're just about out of time. Till tomorrow, folks. Again, listen to this. Send this to all your friends and relatives. God bless you all. And thank you for listening.